welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Professor Roseanne Kenny, the Chair of Medical Gerontology and Head of the Academic Department of Medical Gerontology at Trinity College Dublin, is my guest on the podcast today. So Roseanne's research focuses on neurocardiovascular function and ageing. She is the Director of the Mercer's Institute for Successful Ageing and founding PI of TILDA, which is the Irish Longitudinal Study for Successful Ageing. Um, which is Ireland's largest adult population study on ageing now in its 12th year. So Rosanna is also a fellow of the Royal Irish Academy. And with all of this in mind, um, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast today, Rosanna, especially as my final guest for season three. Um, it's such an honour to have you. So thank you so much for giving me your time today. Thank you for inviting me, Megan. Um, OK, so we'll start right in. Um, Kind of with this podcast, I like to get to know what you were like as a child. Were you always interested in medical research, science, kind of medicine, or did that come a little later on? So, yeah, talk to me about that. I wasn't necessarily as a child interested necessarily in medical research, but I I was a studier always. I, I don't actually remember that specifically myself, but ironically, last week I met a friend of a younger sister of mine. And she commented that every time she came to our house to play, I had my head stuck in a book. So I, I don't I don't actually particularly think I did, but it was an interesting observation. So anyway, when did I get interested? You know, my father was a doctor, etc. And yeah, so I, I knew a little bit about medicine before I decided to do it. I did quite a lot of voluntary work in secondary school uh, with the Multiple Sclerosis Society because my father actually um, developed multiple sclerosis quite an aggressive form. So I helped a lot with that society. And I think it was during that period of time when I was volunteering, say, between the ages of, of 13 and 17, that I really decided I wanted to do medicine. And so mm. where, where did you grow up? Where, where are you from? Oh, well, I was born in Canada. Then when we moved to Ireland, we lived in Sligo with my grandfather for a period of time in, in a house called Farm Hill House, which was a farm and an, an old uh, Georgian house with no no heating, but a, but a lovely old infrastructure and old stables, that sort of thing. But, but you know, it was very, it was old and, and rickety house, uh, <laughs> but, but a nice place to grow up, a lovely place actually for a childhood. And do you think it was potentially your father's influence that did lead you down the path of medicine ultimately? I, I remember distinctly what even led me down the path of geriatric medicine. I remember looking after, um, when I say looking after, my mother and I take this uh, patient who was living in rural Galway at the time, out maybe once a week for a drive or to somewhere, who, who had bad multiple sclerosis. He was an only son. And uh, I remember uh, as he deteriorated, he was admitted to a so-called nursing home and we went to visit him there. And it was, you know, just it was just heart wrenching. The rooms were quite literally in the basement of, again, an old house. The walls were weeping wet and 
there were um, eight men in the ward he was in. No, no curtains, nothing shielding one bed from another. And at the top of the room, you could see as you walked into the room, so-called ward, an open commode with feces and urine in it. And it was just, and he had bed sores and he hated the place. It was just degrading and disrespectful and the yeah, you know, it was unimaginable, actually. Um, and that's what just decided me, you know, that I, I, I would like to do something with my life that would make a difference to that sort of care. Yeah, because actually that was one of the questions I had for you, um, which I, I thought I would bring up later on the podcast. But just what you're talking about now, it is interesting that at the start of your career, you were in kind of cardiovascular research. And I know that's still a, a theme now, but now it's very much aging. So it seems yeah. that the that the kind of um, gerontology was there from an early, early stage then. Yeah. And actually, when I was doing cardiology, I went to London and did training in the Hammersmith Hospital, as it was then. It's Imperial now um, as, as a once I graduated. And also uh, then I did research, clinical research in the Westminster Hospital, as it was then in cardiology. And as I was doing it, my, the, the area that I was researching was uh, the, what we call barrel reflexes that control heart rate and blood pressure. Um, and and the age-related responses in those and how you know how they change with aging, etc. That got me interested in in the whole aspect of the heart-brain axis, how much of our heart function controls our brain function, and how much of our brain function controls our heart and other cardiovascular function. And from 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 that, and because I was dealing with so many older patients as part of my research, whom I really really enjoyed, uh, for those reasons, I I went into geriatric medicine. But my research focus was on cardiovascular disease and indeed my first chair my first professorship that I accepted in Newcastle upon Tyne was professor of cardiovascular research but I also ran you know geriatric clinics and 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 clinical wards in geriatric medicine there so I suppose before we get into um your research in, in depth so talk to me you went to NUIG um, and you did medicine there and what was that experience like and then why did you make the move then to London Oh, NUIG was fantastic. We had a very small class. There were about 60 in our class. We were a very close class. And, you know, it was it was really great fun. My 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 recall of my university years is is just that they were fun. Um, uh, there was, of course, some work uh, involved, but I, I, well, we, we had a great time in university and a, and a fantastic collegiate spirit. And Galway was wonderful because it was what was referred to at the time as a university town. I mean, every almost everything evolved around the university and the students. So, so it was a it was a very privileged life, really. I went to London. The the job opportunity, I suppose, made itself available. I mean, London at the time was where a lot of people were going, and of course, the quality of research and everything was so much better than you could ever get in in the Republic. And the training was also very good, particularly where I went, the Hammersmith Hospital, which was then the Royal Postgraduate uh, Medical Hospital. Um, yeah, and that was, again, just a, such a rich experience for me in terms of scholarship and the breadth of uh, medical specialties, etc. something we hadn't been exposed to in Ireland at that time. And I know you spent a number of years in Newcastle. And did you ever think at some point that you would stay there, that that, you know, that was where you were setting up shop? Oh, um, I, if I was honest with you, I was going to, we were going to stay there. There was no question of coming home. But then Atlantic Philanthropy stepped into the breach and they were keen 
through Chuck Feeney's own aspirations, who who was the founding lead, if you like, of Atlantic Philanthropies, to they were keen to develop research and policy and practice changes in Ireland in the whole area of aging and to support that through philanthropy. And to be honest, it was it was a really tempting offer. And when I came and looked at it and saw the challenges, there were definitely challenges, but with the philanthropy backing uh, supporting the challenges, it may it was it, it was never going to be an impossibility to change the landscape for aging in Ireland. So I, I felt uh, that I could possibly make a difference, and I really relished the challenge at the time. So I suppose before we get into Tilda and, and aging and and the huge amount of research and just scope there to talk about because I'm I've so many things in my head that I want to ask you about um because of all the, the research that's come out of Tilda but I know that when you were in the UK you also were um, instrumental in in uh, forming the, uh, the heads heads up tilt test I think I'm getting that right um, yeah. so talk to me about that and and I suppose what that that tests and how that has um, improved patient outcomes. As part of the sort of research we were doing in clinical practice around the, if you like, the connection between the heart and head or head and heart, we developed a new model of clinical assessment for people who had experienced faints or blackouts or dizziness or indeed falls. Um, and that was in, under the umbrella of the cardiovascular investigation unit. And even, even now, uh, in St. James's Hospital, where I do my clinical work in Mercer's Institute for Successful Aging, we run the largest such clinic in Europe where we apply quite sophisticated technologies when we're assessing patients routinely to assess brain blood flow at the same time as assessing peripheral blood flow and different heart functions. It's um, it's quite a well-known clinic now, on the certainly on the European front, and it's a really rewarding place to work because instead of just gleaning as much as you can from listening to a patient's story mm-hmm. and listening to their heart and measuring blood pressure in the traditional ways, we have a whole other added layer of more sophisticated physiological measures, which really enhance our ability to make diagnoses and then tailor treatments. And it's the idea that because, you know, fainting and falling could be linked to cardiovascular issues, but they're going undiagnosed. That's absolutely right, uh, Megan. In fact, from our work, we now know that 30% of falls. And remember, falls are the commonest reason for an older person to come to the emergency room. 30% are attributable to an underlying cardiovascular cause, be it something to do with blood pressure or heart rate. But the clinic isn't just, we we, we don't discriminate by chronological age. Mm -hmm. We, We see people from age 60 and upwards because the background physiology is very similar. It's just different degrees of severity of change and different relative contributions of the heart versus the blood pressure at different age groups. So there's no point in having a clinic which is just for people over a certain age when all of these measures will enhance the assessment of all ages. So you said something there that it was one of the things I wanted to ask you is this idea of chronological age and, and you know, biological age versus chronological mm-hmm. age. So maybe for those who may not be aware, explain kind of the differences and why maybe we should be more focusing on biological age um, going forward. Sure. sure. Well, well, chronological age is our number. 
you know, what, what age you are, what number you are at this point in time. However, biological age is your pace of aging, your, your actual physical, physiological, biological aging, what, what's happening uh, with respect to wear and tear at a cell level. And it applies to all components of the body, biological aging in the brain, biological aging in muscle, biological aging of our liver, biological aging of our heart, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what Tilda is, is doing as one of its um, objectives is to try and understand the best ways possible that we can measure that biological aging. And then having measured it, compare it with a person's chronological age and determine what are the factors, because it's a longitudinal study, which means we're seeing people uh, every two years from age 50 upwards and taking their life course history. We don't know what's gone on in childhood and middle years, etc. What are the factors throughout the life course which influence or most influence biological aging. And then more and more, both our studies and that of many other groups, because this is a hot topic, are discovering, you know, ways that we can modify biological aging, change biological aging, um, be it through, you know, behaviors, attitude, attitude, or how we perceive ourselves and medications. Yeah, because I, I, I was watching a talk that you did and you described this Dunedin study where it was like, you know, the, these are people of a certain age, certain chronological age, but actually how their biological age varies. There was like a spectrum, a quite a wide spectrum. Um, and it kind of, and I know you're very familiar with um, Dr. Kleena Nikalig, who I had on the podcast, and she spoke about this, about the the difference between her aged whatever and and a homeless person, for example, age that of the same age um, and their biological ages are quite different, even though chronologically they have the same age. Absolutely. So the Dunedin study is a really fantastic study that that um, has been replicated by many groups uh, around the world, including what you've just cited. Um, and basically, they have been following since birth a thousand people every couple of years, so longitudinally, and they're now in their mid forties. When they were aged thirty-eight, they um, used measures of epigenetic aging, which is DNA methylation on CPG sites, to determine biological age. It was a relatively new technology at the time. Um, it's evolved. There are probably 17 such epigenetic clocks now. But they used one of those first clocks to, to compare the biological aging with respect to chronological age and found that even at the age of 38, there was a difference of 20 years so everybody in the study, all a thousand are age 38, but there's a 20 year difference in biological aging. Some were functioning like 18 year olds, other were functioning, others were functioning like 50 year olds at a biological level. And the factors which drove that were childhood distress, which is probably aligned with the homelessness, etc., social economic inequalities, poor education depression and then drug or alcohol abuse and smoking. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's mad to think that, that there is such a, a wide spectrum. And I suppose, you know, you touched on Tilda there and I really want to want to delve into that. So I suppose the first question is, how did you go about this study and, and what were the kind of outcomes you had at the start? And how did you find people that were willing to participate? Because I know you have nearly 10,000, I think I'm perhaps right in saying that. Well, 
well, well, first of all, when I when I did c- c- come back to Ireland and we were, I had been involved in a longitudinal study in, in stroke patients in Newcastle upon Tyne, following them at regular intervals to to map what was determining, you know, continued brain function, be it improving or disimproving in someone who had experienced a stroke, 400 people. And I came back here and I was hoping to do a similar model of evaluation in some longitudinal data in Ireland and discovered there were no longitudinal studies. And then when we met with the Department of Health uh, officials, etc., it became clear that a lot of the policy if not all, of the policy relating to ageing and health, certainly, was being um, derived from data sets in Scotland, and that there weren't any of our own data sets which were adequate to inform that. Um, And of course, the Scottish system is is an NHS system, very different in terms of the health policy and social policy to our own. So, So it became apparent we needed a longitudinal study, basically. Um, and a few of us got together and in Trinity, um, including the outgoing uh, provost, Paddy Prendergast. He was one of those in, interested in the bioengineering aspects of this. Uh, Verpi Timonen, who's a social scientist. Charles Norman, who's a health economist, etc. Um, we got some, again, additional philanthropic funding from Irish Life to start the study. And it, we did need quite a bit of funding to start it because there wasn't even a data set that we could go to and select a randomly cohort of people over 50 in Ireland, knowing their addresses, and then contact them. What we had to do was use what's called a geodirectory, which is just basically a list of addresses in, in across the island. We had to randomly select about 30,000 of those addresses and then call, cold call on those homes and ask if there was anybody 50 or over living there and then invite them to take part in a study. It was a huge process. Gosh. And remarkably, the response rate was 68%. That's absolutely wow. remarkable. It's remarkable. I mean, in most other countries that applied that, had to apply that sort of methodology, it's around between 30 and 40%. So that's fantastic. Um, but it also means, because we didn't draw from a panel, if you, if you can understand me, that was already existing, like, like the US study or the English study. In other words, there was already a panel there with addresses and ages that had been involved in different you know, studies or surveys that you would, again, randomly select from and then invite into the study. So it makes a very valuable data set because it's, it's from scratch. And these were all people who were 50 and over, so it didn't matter what age they were as long as they were over 50, is that right? Yes, exactly. Now, uh, the way we then, the way we then uh, did the selection further was so that it was representative. In other words, the proportion of people over the age, between the age of 50 and 60 was the same as the population proportion between the age of 50 and 60. The proportion of people between the ages of 60 and 70 were the same as the proportion of people at the, in the whole population between 60 and 70, etc. So by doing it like that, we were able to, it's a representative sample at a population level, as closely as you can possibly get it, at least. So you follow these people up every two years and you're now kind of in your 12th year of the study. And what kind of questions or is it a medical examination as well as kind of um, questions about their well-being, health, economic status, etc.? Yeah, so that's really, that's a very good question, of course, and that's what's the heart of the study is. As our cells get older, as we get older, if we don't just age in one little domain, one little area, and nothing else is influenced, it's, it's, a, it's a whole body experience, a whole person experience. So therefore, 
when we were collating the data, we had to understand the household, what a person's life course was like. By that, I mean, you know, their experience age zero, age three, age 10. So we, we did a lot of questions around education, family as they were growing up etc. We even know how many times somebody moved house and water, fluoridation exposure. We, 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 we know about their current economics, their economics during the economic situation during working life if they were retired and their economic situation in childhood and health expenditures and then subjective health experiences. So, you know, do you, do you have high blood pressure? Do you have high cholesterol? Do you have memory problems, etc.? And then we also did objective health assessments. And that's where probably the most powerful policy data has evolved, where we've shown in Ireland quite a gap between what somebody thinks they have or don't have more often and what they actually do have when you look for it. And the value of that is we've been able to work with the Department of Health, who are the primary funders of the study, to say, you know, these are the groups who are most likely to be unaware, for example, that they have high blood pressure, men aged between 50 and 58, and, and who need to have blood pressure treated. And then, and then because we ask the same questions every two years, we're also able to look at the impact that new policies make. So as a result of that information or that example I've just given you, if governments say, OK, we're going to target that age group and get a health message out there through whatever means of communication through the media, um, we can actually go back two years after that and say, OK, so this is the difference that your intervention, your communications have, have made to people being aware of having hypertension or high cholesterol or what a stroke is like, et cetera. Yeah, because I, I I saw that you, you gave an example of people crossing the road, which I thought was so simple, but so effective. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. And I have to credit, you know, I mean, we have a great group working on this, Roman Artuna and Orna Donoghue, et cetera, who, who've done a lot of the original work on this. Um, and basically what we had, because we measured in such detail and accuracy, how fast people can walk and then how fast they walk if they're being distracted, either cognitively or, or physically doing a motor task. Um, and then we were able to extrapolate from that, knowing the different traffic light signaling times in Dublin, what proportion of people over the age of 80 could cross the road comfortably if they were not distracted? how much being distracted would influence that and what the difference might be if traffic light signaling was to be changed by two seconds, by three seconds, etc. How many more people would that enable to be less, if you like, disabled or hampered in terms of independent living? Yeah, that was really valuable. So we worked with Dublin City Council in the first instance and Dunleary particularly were hugely enthused by this and, and collaborative and it subtly changed traffic light signaling times particularly in areas that had a high proportion of older people and we have no idea how much difference that has made now because we haven't done that evaluation phase that's a very hard study to do but we can extrapolate from our own data to say it should have it should have made life easier for 30% of people mm. over the age of 85 something like that you know yeah, we can say that it's it's mad, you know, you know, because from what I can see is there's so much data to get out of this study, um, you know, because even from the reports that you have you've published even in the last year. So maybe like, could you touch on some of the most important findings that you, you feel Tilda has uh, brought to light? 
I suppose, I mean, we've just had a nice example there. A- another interesting one is, and this, this ties in well with COVID, is vitamin D deficiency mm-hmm. so, and insufficiency. So we measure, we take blood samples. We take blood samples to measure biological clocks, but also more frequent uh, measures like vitamin D, vitamin B, folate levels in the blood. Um, and, and, you know, kidney function, liver function, that sort of stuff. And in our measurements, uh, we discovered that a very high proportion of people, even over the age of 50, but particularly over the age of 70, were deficient or insufficient in vitamin D in Ireland. And we know from other studies the implications of that, not just for bone health, and the implications there are huge, or muscle health, and the implications are huge, but also for immunity and and immune responses, respiratory tract infections. And then early in COVID, it became clear that the data was emerging with respect to um, the association between uh, insufficient levels of vitamin D, that's levels below 50 nanomoles per litre, and a higher likelihood of getting COVID and a more likely severity of COVID. So we worked closely with colleagues in in a number of other universities who are experts on vitamin D, set up a task force on this and worked hard to get the message out there. Because at the time, before, at the first, just just at the cusp of COVID, because we'd done a wave of the study, only 9% of people in Ireland were taking vitamin D. Uh, supplements. And the only way in Ireland to get the levels up is to take supplements. You can't get enough out of food and you certainly can't get enough persistently out of sunshine mm-hmm. year, year round. That, I mean, that's a fact. So then we worked, we worked with this task force group. We've prepared a position paper for the Irish Gerontological Society and the health committee of the Oireachtas invited us to do a presentation to them. And they produced a really helpful report highlighting how frequent vitamin D insufficiency is in Ireland, how it can only be uh, improved by supplements Mm. and the necessity for taking supplements, but also for government to help support people taking supplements. And one of the recommendations was to take VAT off vitamin D. Now, vitamin D isn't very expensive anyway, um, but raising awareness like this was hugely helpful. And And I hope the next budget takes some consideration of that strong recommendation from the Oireachtas Health Committee. So would you recommend for people of any age to start taking vitamin D supplements? So that's a great question because that one of the things about TILDA is we make observations, observations on people over the age of 50. And then the next thing is, well, is this just, uh, to, uh, is this just confined to the over 50s? And uh, my colleagues in St. James's who do a lot of bone health and vitamin D work did a large study on almost 40,000 people who had had blood samples measured in St. James's and found that 29% of 18 to 30 year olds have insufficient levels. That's huge. Yeah. And when I, when I had a clinic once, I asked the nurses and doctors I was working with, you know, young junior doctors, um, how many of them were taking vitamin D and nobody was. And then mm. I asked what they thought about vitamin D. And to a person, they said, well, people of our age don't get deficiency or insufficiency, but you do. If you're working indoors in Ireland, um, and you're not exposed to a lot of sunshine, and you're not taking supplements, you 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 are very likely to be deficient or insufficient. Okay, yeah, it's 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 great, like to, you know, to have that data there. Um, I suppose another question I wanted to ask you was just in light of COVID and what you were speaking about there. 
and I think you're quite passionate about this topic, is the the ageism, I suppose, in the media uh, in the recent year with COVID and and with the over 70s. Um, and, and I watched a talk where you kind of had the headlines of newspapers and, and kind of how that could be ageist. Um, so if you want to touch on that, I don't know what your opinion is. No, are. I'm very happy to touch on that. And actually, it's one of the areas we looked at in, in Tilda, and this is currently being led by one of our social scientists, Christine McGarrigal, who has shown that how you perceive yourself aging, your perceptions, you know, you, you, you meet people who, who say, well, I'm, I'm very young at heart. I'm only, I feel 40 and they're 80. Um, that, that, that sort of person, that sort of person actually lives longer, even adjusted for all of the confounders we know influence mortality. And they are less likely to get cognitive impairment or certainly get it at a much slower rate. They walk much more quickly. Four years after they've made that declaration and done some tests which show how how positively or negatively you perceive yourself. So the bottom line there from a research perspective is that aging perceptions influence how you age, the pace of your biological aging. Now, couple that with the ageist literature, particularly media exposure that uh, persons were exposed to during COVID and start with the terminology of cocooning and the implications for that. The implications for all of that were if you're 70 and over, you stay in, you don't go out, you don't engage, etc. And the, the further, the, 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 the subtext there is, well, because you're not needed. You know, we as a society can afford to say to you, we don't need you. You, you, you are not necessary. Stay in. I, I just felt that message was so negative. Mm. Um, and then it was uh, it was it was further exaggerated by media headlines about making choices based on age and whether or not someone was um, was treated uh, for COVID. And, and that's I think I hope I've persuaded you that biological aging drives a lot and it certainly drives responses to interventions etc and there are some 90 year olds who will respond well um, and there are some 50 year olds who will not mm. because of biological aging and under underlying uh, you know physical and, and cognitive substrates so so that of itself was was very negative and I, you know anyone anybody particularly over the age of 70 who comes through covid feeling positive about themselves and um, given the negative persuasive pervasive um media reports and messages that were continuous good for them they they're 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 really resilient and strong but uh, my my problem was that that was a very difficult for people um, at, at that time and very inappropriate. And I think it just showed how superficial our approach is to aging and ageism. And once, you know, the, the, the top layer of skin is removed, there's a lot of ageist attitude. In fact, it's the it's the last ageism. You know, we, we've, we, we have, I, I think, certainly raised awareness and are dealing with sexism. Mm. Um, although you still encounter it, of course, and there are lots of anecdotes with respect to that. And racism is getting profiling. It's still out there, but at least people are talking about it and they're aware of it. But ageism is definitely third party to all of uh, to the other two. Um, and we need to start thinking and talking more about this issue. Yeah, because, you know, you talk about as well, like the contribution of the older society to or of the older population to our society. And that is still huge and it's still valuable. Um, and I think because watching one of your talks before I um, came on the podcast, I was so struck by like how much we actually are our lifespan is extended as the years go on. Like it is a bit 
insane to think that you know maybe my generation will live to into their 90s you know that kind of way um on average you will, you will even if you retire at 70 you'll probably have 25 years more in retirement before yeah. before you pass i mean i probably will have 20 anyway you know i mean it's crazy and you know notwithstanding that in the terms of the contribution one of the first, and again, I feel a bit patronizing when I talk about the contribution of, that older people make. You know, I'm getting old into the older person category myself, by <laughs> definition. But, the, but that older people make to society because, because actually, of course they do. You know, but, mm. but sometimes you have to state these things. The first, we did 10 reports. Our team completely repurposed themselves for the 12 months of COVID. And we, we did reports for government to help them with their policy management of over 50s in Ireland. And the first report we did was the contribution that older people make to society because we felt so strongly about what the media were, were displaying. Um, talking about an 85-year-old, describing, first of all, their age, secondly, the fact that they may have been in a nursing home, thirdly, the fact that they had comorbidities, as though any of those, any of those factors affected the fact that this person had died from COVID. Yeah. But that's, that stopped then in, in the latter waves, which is good, which is good. Um, and then we did other reports on, you know, chronic diseases was a big risk factor, is a big risk factor, as you know. So we were able, because of the detail of our, of our data, to map out where the, what the prevalence of chronic diseases was, even down to local authority level, uh, which was very helpful for government. But the, what the levels of, of frailty or home help. We knew all of that so that we could help government say, well, you know, you still need this proportion of services for this proportion of people, irrespective of where you're, you've tr you're trying to draw your services into other, other aspects of the health service. So, so va really valuable stuff. And of course, we did another one on vitamin D and found that there was an increase in 15% in people taking supplements up to 23%. That was the first wave. And we're doing another wave now. And hopefully, I'm hopeful that the take up on vitamin D supplements will be even higher. But also, we're looking at COVID antibodies, um, antibodies for a number of viruses in, in saliva. So we have an idea of in the over 50s for people who, who didn't know they had COVID, what were, what, what were they like? What was their biology like? What are their biological clocks like? So they, they've had it. They weren't aware they've had it, but we know they've had it from their antibodies. Mm. What, what does that person look like? Yeah, that, like what, what kind of strikes me is my question is like, how do, how do you fit it all in? And especially in the last year, because like you said, you've, you know, restructured your whole team and brought out all these reports and you're constantly, you know, researching, but dealing with patients and also dealing with the, with the government. So, yeah, how how do you juggle it all? I'm I'm intrigued. <laughs> No, well, no, no, because I'm only I'm only one of a team. I'm a, I have a great team that you know that I'm leading in Tilda, but also in Mercer's Institute in St James's. And the two teams talk together. They work together. They're very closely aligned, in, so that we translate a lot of the work. And it's it's to be honest, it's really interesting work. Yeah. Um. So it isn't it isn't re it's so not about me. It's about having a fantastic team, and and they're enthused and they come up with as many ideas as, as certainly as I do or anybody else. And we've had we've had we've had the team with us for a long period of time. They're yeah. incredibly experienced now, although not tenured in the university, which is a great pity for many. They they they're funded from research grants to research grant, but they're hugely experienced people now. Just following on from that, I suppose, what do you love most about your role and what you do day to day? And then I suppose on the flip side, what frustrates you or, or stresses you out the most about uh, your job? 
Well, well, what I love most are, I suppose, twofold, the people I work with and patients. I really do like, I still, I still get so much pleasure and fulfillment from, from my clinical sessions. They're fascinating. And then the research is self-evident that it's very fascinating. And I love, I love working with the particularly younger researchers who come full of enthusiasm and great ideas that I love. Most frustrating without a question of doubt is the lack of continuity of funding um, and the continuous need to reinvent um, research, reinvent your research questions and hypotheses to meet a particular call or whatever, um, to sust- you know, to sustain the study. It's been hard. We've been going now since 2006. We had four years of pilot data. And since 2009, we've been um, fully in the field, uh, going into our seventh wave in January, I hope, 2021. But, you know, there, there, is, there is insufficient money in Ireland for funding these sorts of rich studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beauty about the funding we got from philanthropy, from Atlantic philanthropy, was that they were far less restrictive. So what they did was they identified who they wanted to lead out on their research and their themes, the areas and domains they were interested in funding. And then they they just said to you, OK, deliver it and show us what you've delivered when you say you've delivered. But there wasn't weren't continuous reviews and hours and hours spent on informing funding bodies. So there are by far... That was that's a really good model, and that's what I would recommend. And then finally, again, it's funding, getting tenure for people that I've described to you who are really well trained, mm. who are who are thought leaders, research leaders, and again, you know, finding finding support for them to continue leadership, so that so that this process is sustainable. Because aging and climate change are the two big things coming down the track for all societies. On your kind of um, clinical side of things, like how how much of your time is spent in the clinic? I do two clinics a week and then one session now, just uh, catching up on notes and letters and all of the administrative sort of support from that. And then and then I would do clinical research studies. So we, we put in um, implantable devices to measure the stuff I've, I've described to you in terms of blood pressure and heart rate and all of that. There are now little devices that you can inject in under the skin and we're working with some of the companies who develop these to see if if uh, we they can be used for literally real-time monitoring so that all of that information is captured not just from a watch or an external wearable device but an internal plantable device. Um, I suppose Roseanne my my last question for you and um, which I tend to ask most of my guests but sometimes it's a bit of a hard question but if you weren't in the role you're in now and if you weren't in the job you're in now where do you think your life might have ended up or what other career do you think you may have had? Um, a nun who, who taught me who had a lot of insight when I told her I was going to do medicine she, 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 she said you're crazy you really? don't have a science brain you must do philosophy <laughs> and when I retire, I'd like to study history a little bit more. I thought your answer was a nun. I thought you were going to say you wanted to be a nun. Uh, no. <laughs> Although I suspect, like all girls of my my period, I did go through five minutes in a, in a convent boarding school, sitting, thinking, "Is should I? Should I? Do I have a vocation? But the answer was rapidly apparent to not just me, I suspect. <laughs> Um, well, listen, it's been so lovely to talk to you and thank you so much for giving me your time today. Um, and yeah, there's so much food for thought there. I think everyone's going to find it a really interesting episode. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
Thank you very much, Megan. And just to say that I've completed a book called Age is Not a Number, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the biological aging, and it'll be out in January, uh, published by UK publishers. And they've already, there are already um, permissions for Chinese and Korean editions. So that'll be fun. <laughs> that sounds great fun. This episode is sadly the last one for season three. So I would just like to take this opportunity to thank each of my 12 guests this season for sharing their wonderful stories. My sponsor, Biosciences Limited, now part of Thermo Fisher, who have supported this podcast for nearly a year now, and I'm extremely grateful. And of course, I would like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in each week around the globe. I'm going to take a quick break for the summer, but I'll be back in the autumn for season four of Unraveling Science. But until then, if you like listening to this podcast, please rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.